Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Path 11 podcast. I would like to invite back to the Path 11 podcast, Ken Doka. If you haven't listened to the episode last year when we interviewed him, he is episode 245. You can go back in our archives and take a listen because we're going to be talking about something a little bit different today. But before I get to Ken, he is going to be one of the keynote speakers at the Afterlife Awareness Conference for 2021. And uh, just to let you know a little bit more about the conference high highlights. They do offer APA continuing education credits, certificates this year in death midwifery. There's unique in-depth workshops from presenters, uh, multicultural perspectives on death, dying, and the afterlife. One of my favorite parts are the sacred ceremonies and guided shamanic journeying that they do there throughout the conference. So uh, without further ado, my guest today, Ken Doka, like I said, was on uh, last year, episode 245. He's a senior consultant to the Hospice Foundation of America and one of today's leading voices in the end-of-life care, death awareness, and bereavements. He has written many, many books. We will put his whole accolades in the show notes because it would take me probably about 15 minutes to read them all. Um, His recent research on the mystical experiences of the dying is opening doors for spiritual practitioners such as death doulas, mediums, and shamanic healers to offer their services in mainstream settings. And he's going to talk a little bit about uh, the mystical experiences today and what he's going to share at the Afterlife Conference, but we're not going to have him give away his whole presentation. And um, Ken's uh, presentation is included in the continuing education track. So, Ken, welcome back to the Path 11 podcast. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm honored and delighted to be back. Yeah, it, it's it's great to um, have you. I learned so much in our last talk. Uh, we were kind of talking more about grief being a journey in the last podcast that we had done together. And um, so, yeah, so I'd like to know a little bit more about these mystical experiences and how is this opening up doors for shamans and death doulas to kind of bring this work more into the mainstream? Well, you know, it's been interesting because for a number of years, really, um, almost a, a hundred years, really, with some of this material, we've we've known about some of these kinds of experiences. And, you know, when we can debate how they're to be interpreted and how they're to be understood, um, but they exist. And, and in my recent book, When We Die, Extraordinary Experiences at Life's End, I talk about both the experiences prior to, to death and um, and the experiences that happen in bereavement. But, you know, but for example, um, probably one of the earliest reports of these experiences is the late 1800s. Um, and it's an experience called terminal lucidity, which, um, which as I said, is, is, is well known. It's well accepted. Um, and it's where somebody who is um, comatose or has dementia or maybe severe intellectual disabilities, um, all of a sudden in the last moments of, of, of life um, has... Uh, comes out of a coma or um, or speaks coherently and um, and really addresses their own death. The, the first case of this was a woman in an institution in Germany in the really the turn of the century um, who was severely retarded. She never 
um, had severe intellectual disabilities, what we would call severely retarded a decade ago. And um, she never, never uh, spoke. Um, her behavior was really um, nonverbal. And then all of a sudden, um, right before she died, she, she and uh, she sat up in her bed and she sang essentially a hymn of her own dying. Wow. Uh, and it was it was an amazing event. And it it really had, you know, and it's interesting to see the impact that this had on the physician and chaplain in Germany who witnessed this. Katie Elmer was that was the patient. Um, they wrote about it, but it really changed their orientation. And, and 30 years later, they would put their really literally their lives on the line in opposing Hitler's euthanasia program because they were so touched by that experience. And so um and, and basically said there is no life that's not worth living, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. So it was uh, it, it had a phenomenal uh, reaction to them. So that's one of the more, you know, as I said, one of the more common ones. Whenever I talk about this to hospice people or, or people who are work at the end of life, like doulas, uh, I'll ask if they've ever seen this. And, and uh, I'd say 70 percent of the hands will will uh, will rise as they, you know, they say, yeah, I, I, I've seen that once or twice. Um mm-hmm. Um, another kind of experience that's very common, um, and one that that um, that I w- I experienced myself was um, what Callanan and Kelly called uh, nearing death awareness. And in nearing death awareness, um, clients um, or persons really, um, in one way or another. Um, seem to be aware of, or at least obliquely aware, or make people obliquely aware of their impending death. Um, for example, they may start talking about travel. Uh, you know, so here's this person who's barely able to get out of the bed, um, or maybe not able to get out of the bed, and they're talking about they have to catch a plane, or they have to go on a trip. Or another common um, reaction to this, or another common way that people deal with this, is um where they talk about um, meeting someone, you know, who's long died. Um, you know, I was talking to grandma last night and you're thinking, well, grandma died 20 years ago. Um, and, uh, and then the last one, um, which is actually, I experienced in my father's death is, is just an awareness of death. And, um, and when my father was dying of, of cancer, he was in hospice care. He had reached what was considered to be a stable point was right after Thanksgiving um, and we expected he, he might live for a while longer, um, you know, in this debilitated state, but still, you know, seemed to have stabilized. And then one morning he woke up and he said, am I dying? And, and the question was not, do I have a life-threatening illness that's going to eventually cause my death? It was really very imminent. And my mother called me up and, um, and I spoke to dad and I asked if he was in any pain. Um, and he said, no, I, I just feel very different. Uh, today, I just, I feel like I'm dying. And so we, um, myself and my brother and my sister all rushed to the house and we stayed with him all day. Um, and then he told us that night that he was uh, feeling a little better. And we should each go to our own rooms, um, our old rooms, I should say. And um, and then he died that night. Uh, my sister always felt bad because she said we should have stayed with him. And my notion was, no, I, I think he, he needed to be with us. He needed us to be with him, but not at the point of death. He needed us to go away. Um, and and the, the title of Callanan and Kelly's book 
is um, is final gifts because this really, if you can interpret these behaviors, they really provide a, a last opportunity to say what you need to say or to do what you need to do. So those are are probably two of the most common, and then. Other ones, are, of course, are premonitions of death or um, or just the very strange coincidences that can come around death. Yeah, that that's all fascinating to me. And I was curious to know, like in the example that you gave about Germany, is our scientists trying to prove this to be something different? Are they saying, well, you know, these are the chemicals that are getting released as the body is dying, which could cause this reaction? I mean, they sometimes dispute uh, near-death experiences and visions that people have during their near-death experience because okay. of what could be happening. And certainly, of course, near-death experiences are, are another one of the most common of these. Um, you know, I, I think in the scientific community, I mean, I think, and, and I count myself as part of that community, um, our, our, our attempt always is to say, are there natural ways to explain this? And, you know, and, and that's legitimate. That's how science advanced, you know. Um, and and I think in some cases um, we look at these and we say, well, maybe it's this or maybe it's that. And in other cases, we um, we just shake our hands and say, boy, this 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 one's got me. And I think terminal lucidity um, is one of those things where um, where scientists and social scientists and philosophers really struggle to understand what could be happening here. And um, and you find all kinds of explanations, you know. Um, um, one of which is that, you know, maybe there's a, uh, a divide between brain and mind. And when, um, when somebody's ill or, or all of a sudden they, they can regain a lucidity that they may have never experienced. So, um, you know, I, I don't find as great a divide maybe as, as you're suggesting, but just a kind of, um, sense of mystery that's, that's hard for people who, um, who are in the sciences to sometimes cope with. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It reminds me a little bit of um, the work of Lisa Smart. We had her on the podcast a couple of years ago and she had wrote a book, uh, The Language of the Dying, and did some work with Raymond Moody and very similar to a lot of this stuff where she was, you know, encouraging our listeners to pay attention to the words that people are saying when they're you know, getting ready to transition and that there is a code. And she had interviewed like so many people that was showing, like you had said, oh, it's time for me to go play golf or it's time for me to go take <laughs> this trip that, you know, or it was de decoding the language of the dying might have been the book. Um, yeah. And but, you know, having interviewed so many people, she began to see a little bit of a theme that was happening. And she said exactly the same thing that you had said, that this is a great opportunity to be able to you know, talk to your loved ones who are transitioning and that you may even be getting messages that may mean something, um, mm -hmm. even if it doesn't make sense in the present moment. Yeah. And, and, you know, and we used um, those moments with my dad to, to really reminisce with him and to, and to talk with him and to, you know, essentially validate his life and validate his relationship. It was, um, it, that day really was a final gift. Um, and, um, and I'm glad we had it. Yeah, um, a client of mine who recently passed in October of 2020 was very lucid during her transition of death. And uh, it was the first time that I had experienced someone actually hearing music. 
Um, she was thought that we were playing music in the background. It was very angelic tones. And I was going over to give her some energy work. And I was like, okay, I'm going to put the music on now. And she's like, you mean the music isn't playing? She's like, I'm just hearing this angelic music. And that was the album that I actually had selected. It was a uh, like very wow. angelic music. And then I played it and I said, is this what you're hearing? She goes, oh my God, it sounds almost exactly like it. And, uh, and she was seeing a lot of, or having a lot of dreams and visions of her parents who were past coming to her but she but it wasn't in a dream state she's like I see them every day and they're in black and white and they look beautiful but again kind of that visitation of those who are already past showing up but the music was very new for me and um, you know she kind of seemed a little startled about like oh I thought it was already playing and um, and there was one day when I went to visit her kind of similar to what you said about your father and she said I'm really scared today something feels really different Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and the energy work to help to ease some of that fear, but it was almost as if she knew she was taking a step closer to death, you know, like something really shifted for her. So, um, yeah, it's really was a really, you know, amazing experience in one hand, sad on the other hand as well. But, mm -hmm. you know, to be able to have these conversations with people, there's such, I think, amazing teaching moments for us who are still living. If we can, learning moments, yeah. To be, yeah, learning. Absolutely. Teaching and learning. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. So, um, I guess uh, another thing that I wanted to talk to you about, we're going to switch gears a little bit, just because I want to honor what's going on in the world with the pandemic and COVID. And I know that you are an expert on bereavement and death and dying and all of this. And I just wasn't, I wasn't sure if, you know, with your expertise and you've been around a long time, is there anything new that you're learning or a different dynamic to grief uh, with this pandemic or anything that you can really talk about to help people? Because I feel like, uh, the amount of grief and loss that is happening is more than just people passing away and dying from this. Uh, there's so many other things that are happening with grief and loss. And I was just wondering, you know, if you're learning anything new yourself, if you're seeing a different dimension of grief or everything that you have studied up until now is just like kind of playing itself out. Yeah, I, I, I guess what, what I've been writing about is what I call the coming pandemic of complicated grief. Um, that you know that that this disease has really um, has is really going to leave uh, a residue, um, and you know my hope is that within the next year um, the vaccine will be widely distributed. Um, that will um, that COVID nineteen will be um, a, a bad memory, much like the influenza epidemic of a, a century ago was it was a bad memory. Um, but it's still going to leave a tremendous residue. And there are a number of reasons for that. And, and one is, you know, just as we talked before about those, the intimacy of those moments of dying, uh, lots of people are being deprived of that. Um, they're, they're not allowed to be uh, around the person who is dying. They're not allowed to have those moments where they do reminisce, they do reconcile, they do validate. Um, and that's going to have a toll. And of course, you know, from the very beginning of time, uh, it's interesting. A number of years ago, uh, in the 60s, Lewis Mumford wrote a wonderful book, not related to this field, but just the city and history. Uh, and it was about, you know, basically urban sociology. And one of the things that Mumford said, um, which always struck me, sort of interested in both areas, was he reminded us that the first settlements 
of humankind were really cemeteries that you know, our nomadic uh, ancestors and forebearers would um, return year after year to certain burial grounds, carrying their, their dead with them um, and, and to undergo certain rituals as, as they buried their dead in these sacred places. And, um, and, and, you know, and it really reminds us of the importance of rituals around death and dying. And people are being deprived of these rituals. Plus, people are experiencing multiple kinds of losses, um, losses of jobs, losses of regularity. Um, you know, um, I felt bad for my granddaughter last year. She was in the eighth grade of her school, the last year of her school. And normally there'd be things like a senior trip and a senior dance and a graduation. Um, they eventually had the graduation in July outside, um, but very different. No reception, just, you know, everyone uh, go home, everyone sitting uh, distantly in the parking lot from each other. Um, and, and again, these are losses too, um, these non-death losses. And and I think whether you've died of COVID nine, whether somebody has died of COVID nineteen, or died of another disease during this pandemic, um, in in both cases, they've been deprived of these moments around dying and these moments around um, around ritual um, that are really going to um, affect us uh, for a number of years. And and as I said, I I see uh, the next pandemic as being one of complicated grief. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Like you said, I mean, it's just there's so many different types of grieving that are happening, not just people who are passing, but like our, the ritual is a big, big part, you know, and, and I it just makes me wonder, too, that maybe we haven't even realized until the pandemic hit how many rituals we do have that are lost, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, even with the holidays coming up and sure. um, people needing to change that ritual or short, make it smaller or not everybody can join because they're trying to, you know, slow the spread, stop the spread. Uh, it's really, I think, waking us up to realize that even though we're kind of in uh, a Western culture and not an indigenous culture that we have created these rituals and these ceremonies um, you know they may look a little different than what a shaman might do but in essence we really do have those rituals and they're very important critical yes and, and I think there's another piece too that I see um, which is what I, I, I you know look at as the disenfranchisement of non-COVID deaths and and I always go back to um, an aunt of mine who died at 90 93 years old on September 12th 2001 literally the day after the, um, the September 11th attacks. And, um, and she died, you know, very, very differently. Uh, obviously, she died in her bed. She was surrounded by her family. Uh, she was the matriarch of a family, you know. And, um, and when I told people I was going to a funeral, there was almost a sense of excitement. Somebody who died on 9-11. And then I said, no, no, you know, just the, an aunt. And it almost became like uh, you got a sense that it didn't count as much. Mm. And uh, even the clergyman who did the funeral um, made the comment, this is not one of those tragic deaths. And uh, the family jokes that I gave the rebuttal at the graveside where I said, for us, this is. Uh, this is the matriarch of our family. This is one of those terrible deaths. Um, even though she died peacefully at home at 93, um, and, you know, and certainly was not in the horror of 9-11, wasn't even aware of, of that at the time that she died. Um, it still was a death that, that made that that it impacted us. Mm 
And and I think that's the other danger with these, co- you know, with the attention to COVID is the deaths that where people die not of COVID are, in a sense, almost being uh, swept aside. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. You know, like the New York Times right now um, will have a special heading on the COVID epidemic where they'll say uh, lives that it, lives that we've lost. Um, you know, and so if you died of COVID, you're alive with uh, a life we have lost. But if you die of cancer, you're just a cancer death. Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's like not holding as much importance, whereas yeah. probably, you know, one of the big killers was cancer before COVID came along, you know, and it would be like, oh, yes, you have cancer. Now it's like, oh, you have COVID. Um, yeah. And, you know, going back to the matriarch of the family, uh, that is just fresh in my mind right now too. Another one of my clients had recently had lost her mother. And in that family, uh, the mother really held a lot of these rituals and traditions. And the family is feeling a little lost because this mother would be the one that would do the cooking and the certain recipes. And they don't even know if they want to continue that tradition or number one, have the energy to, right? Because of the grief that they're all experiencing. Um, but at the same time, there's also the women in the family feeling a little bit of a sense of respect responsibility to have to take that ritual and tradition over. And now are they the ones that are going to have to, you know, cook these meals and make sure that these dishes are there for the family to provide the family more support. And I've also seen other families uh, when there was a matriarch in the family pass away that sometimes rituals can dissolve away. And, and then the family just doesn't do what they normally did when it came to rituals and celebrations. Do you have anything to say about that? Now, I, I, you know, we actually have a name for that in the field. We call those secondary losses. And they're all the losses that kind of, uh, if, if you, you know, if you throw a stone in a pond, you see all these little circles of, of, of impact that come out. And, and when we have a significant death, the same thing happens. All kinds of things change. Um, routines and rituals and places um, may shift in significance. Um you know, uh, we may lose other people. Uh, I always remember when my son was 16, he's in his 40s now. But when he was 16, I was counseling a client whose 19 year old son had died suddenly. And she said something which really impacted upon me. She said, not only did I lose my son, but I simultaneously lost all of his friends. Mm. And it talks about the importance of secondary losses that, you know, that one loss can ripple and affect all kinds of other losses. And I, I think about that now with my grandchildren. We have a, a pool at my house and my grandchildren live three quarters of a mile away and on bikes and now cars, they're pretty mobile. Uh, so, you know, it's not unusual that I come back home on a on a summer day and, and the house is, uh, the yard is full of kids, they're friends and, um, and you know, and, and over the years, uh, I've gotten to know some of these kids too. And, um, you know, even as I think of my, my grandson going to college, you know, the, the pop-ins of these kids as they pop into our house and, you know, and my, um, uh, and, and my grandson opens the refrigerator and hands them out sodas and they're, you know, they're chatting, you know, those are losses. Um, uh, and, and that's what, why secondary losses are so important because they really compound our sense of change. Yeah, in some ways, as you're talking about it, if if somebody was to actually make a list of all these secondary losses, that may even be more of a pile 
um, you know, like you said, compounding it, but the secondary losses may actually be what really contributes to a large portion of the grief because there are so many moments that can be added up that are no oh, longer yes, there. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I want to also ask you some questions about tragic deaths and PTSD. And have you done any research on how post-traumatic stress can affect the grieving process? If you have kind of two things simultaneously going on where this isn't uh, necessarily a death that was anticipated, um, you know, a terminal illness that people had a chance to kind of watch, be a part of, but something that is more uh, traumatic uh, yeah. to a person. Well, well, you know, probably the best way to understand that is that what, um, and, and and it's a good example of another type of secondary loss, really, uh, in, the, in this one, in this case, a very significant one, is that if um, if if um, if my father dies of cancer, which he did, and you know, and you you know it's happening, and you you're you're there watching the decline and. Um, and and being with the person, um, you certainly are affected by grief and 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 the like. But if he was healthy and all of a sudden was hit by a car or um, or mugged and and died as a result of a homicide, that makes it traumatic. And and the the, the difference is that a traumatic loss affects our safe our sense of safety, and and that's one of the reasons why the COVID nineteen. Um, virus is, has become really very traumatic. Um, and what I mean by that is we have what we call an assumptive world. And that is we usually run under the premise that the world is safe, it's predictable, it's benevolent. And then traumatic events remind us, uh, no, that's not the case. You know, here, you know, a year and a half ago, who would have ever thought that our economy would take a, a nosedive, um, that we'd be sitting around um, in, in relative isolation, uh, wearing masks, social distancing. Um, it sounds like something from a terrible science fiction story. And yet it happened. So our whole sense of safety has been shattered. We, um, we look at the world now as much more dangerous than we probably looked at it a year ago. Um, and all of these are factors. Um, that make traumatic deaths um, more problematic or create different sets of problems with them. And of course, post-traumatic stress disorder is a complication of dealing with that trauma um, in that we, um, we internalize um, that sense of, of, of being unsafe. And, um, and we have all, you know, and it relates to all kinds of other experiences, but, but yeah, um, traumatic events add another dimension to grief in that you're not only grieving an individual, but you're grieving the loss of your assumptive world. The world is no longer as safe, as predictable, as benevolent as you thought it was. Yeah. And would you recommend um, people that maybe are experiencing more of that traumatic experience through death, that it is important to receive some sort of counseling? I know I've, I've had people um, say, well, I don't need a therapist. I don't need counseling. I'm going to grieve in my own way. But do you feel in your expertise that there are certain uh, deaths that if you are witnessing or have experienced in your life, say, like you said, murder, homicide, um, suicide, um, you know, accidents uh, that have happened, do you believe that they really need a clinical intervention or do you believe it's based on the resilience of the person and how they can move through it? 
I, I think my answer to that is yes. <laughs> and and um uh, and I'm I'm answering that deliberately as 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 a yes because I think um I think yes we we want to understand the fact that some people are resilient and some people um really don't need interventions even when they experience these horrendous situations but on the other hand um I think it's good certainly to do a checkup um to say you know here's what happened and here's what I'm doing and here's what I'm experiencing. Um, and, and a good therapist will say, yeah, you're, um, you sound like you're handling an abnormal situation, um, as well as can be expected. Um, an atypical situation as well as can be expected. And others might say, you know, um, you know, you're, you're really showing some, some symptoms. You're having flashbacks, you're having nightmares that really, um, suggest that we should do some further work on this. So, you know, so I, I don't want to deny the natural resilience of people. I don't think everybody needs therapy all the time. But I think, you know, when you have these kinds of experiences, you know, you have to say, how how much is it really affecting me? Um, what are, what are, how is grief being manifested? Is it disabling me in certain dimensions of my life? Um, is it, um, is it creating destructive, self-destructive or other destructive impulses? Um, is it really interfering with the, with the nature of my life? And if the answer to those is yes, certainly therapy is mandated. And I think for most people, you know, checking in, having a, a sort of like, um, you know, we don't think anything of going to a doctor for an annual check. Um, and, and sometimes when we have these experiences, it may be good to go to a mental health professional and say, you know, I've, I've gone through this and um, here's what I'm doing and here's what I'm experiencing. And what do you think? And, you know, and as many times as a therapist that I've said, you know, I, given what you've done, I think you're doing good. Here are the danger signs to watch. And here are the times that you should, you know, that you might want to consider coming back. Um, but, uh, but no, I, I would also agree that no, not, not everyone needs therapy, uh, even when they've experienced these kinds of events. But again, Mental health checks are as important as physical checks sometimes. Sure, absolutely. And of course, you know, being a mental therapist, I am uh, right right with you there. Um, but would you say, is there a period of time um, for people to kind of assess themselves? Like some people will say, well, how should I feel in a year? How should I feel in six months? Um, you know, are there some warning signs that if there hasn't been some sort of movement in the healing or the grieving process by a certain period of time that you would caution the person that this might be the time to kind of get a wellness check? Um, yeah, I, I would say certainly, certainly there are, 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 let's say, clear danger signs. And, and certainly if you're self-destructive, um, you know, uh, either, you know, consciously thinking of, of, you know, coping with suicidal thoughts or even just drinking too much or using too, you know, uh, using drugs too much or doing all these kinds of things, that's clearly a danger sign. If it's really disabling you in some of your roles in life, like your, um, you're not working as effectively as you were. Um, you're really not able to work. You're not really able to come home um, and 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 do anything. You're 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 zonked. You know, certainly those are danger signs. But for the most part, I would say you know the first year is going to be rough. I often describe grief as a roller coaster, um, an old-fashioned roller coaster. And I, you know, and and if you go on a roller coaster, usually 
um, the first couple of runs, uh, you know, is, is where it's the hardest. You know, the ups and the downs are more intense. They, um, the downs uh, are more intense. They seem to last longer. Um, we, we tend to have more manifestations of grief. And then over time, uh, it's not like you're getting off the roller coaster. But usually the ups and downs are not as intense. Now, that may take six months. That may take a year. But usually after about a year, I start asking people, are you finding? We may still be on this roller coaster. But are you finding now that the ups and the downs, the, the, the downs don't come as frequently. They don't last as long. They're not as bad as they were. And if a person says a year and a half down the line, um, yeah, you're right. Um Still have some rough moments, but they're not as rough as they used to be. They don't last as long. They're not as intense. Then I think you're, you're looking at what we might call typical grieving reactions. But again, remember the danger signs. Those are clear manifestations of saying, no, I, I need help. Great. Now, and and would a danger sign, I'm just thinking of another um, person who had lost a child and say it's been two years and the parents are saying, I still cry every single night and it's been two or three years since my child has passed. Um, do you think that that, because that's kind of, I don't know if that's in the gray area or not. You know, it sounds like it's I, healthy. I, I would think that if you're still crying two or three years, and again, the, you know, one of the things in American society um, or advanced societies is that the death of a child is inherently traumatic, inherently complicating. Uh, Therese Rando, a good colleague and a good friend, um, um, often talks about that as, as one of the risk factors for complicated grief. Now, again, you know, um, that always has to be looked at in society and looked at a culture, um, because in, in some cultures that may not be as traumatic. Uh, my grandmother was born in the 1800s and, um, and lived a very long life. Um, and, you know, and, and in my family, we call these family bombs when somebody just drops something on you that you never heard before and you think, that should have come up before. But one day I was talking to my mother, uh, and it was, it was actually when I was first starting in the field, and I was working with dying children. And my mother just turned to me and said, did, um, did you know that I had a brother who died? And I said, no, in 23 years, that should have come up once. <laughs> right, <laughs> you, you think? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I said, what happened? She says, well, I was only two years old. He was four. He died of diphtheria. This was in the early 1900s. And um, so I went to my grandmother, a lovely Hispanic woman, um, you know, again, who was uh, who grew up in the in, in the mid 1800s, who started her life in the mid 1800s or late 1800s. And I said, Grandma, I said, um, I said, I understand you had um, I did this sort of in half a uh, Spanglish because she didn't really speak English that well, or at least she claimed not to. Uh, I never, never knew if that <laughs> was the case. Um, but I said, uh, I said, Grandma, I understand I had an Uncle Juan. And she, and she said something, I'll never forget it. And my grandma was a kind, loving, family-centered woman. And she said, yes, I was very lucky. I had six children and five of them grew up to adulthood. Hmm. I don't think you'd find anybody saying that in Compassionate Friends today. Mm -hmm. But that was the world that she lived in here. You know, we didn't always expect a, a child to die. Um, and... Uh, you know, where you know, if you had six kids, you expected you were going to lose one or two uh, in her world, but that's not right. the case now, of course. But my point, I guess, is that um, 
I don't know what my point was. My point would be, yeah, going back to your original question, that um, that I th I think if you're crying three years after the event and it's really interfering in your life, uh, and that doesn't mean an occasional tear at Christmas or the holidays. We all have those surges of grief forever, um, you know, through the end of our journey in life. You know, so if uh, if you know when my one kid graduates from college, if if I had a second child who died, you might say, "Gee, I, I wish, you know, I, I I wish Tommy or 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 Joan would have had that experience." That's very normal. But if you're crying every night three years after, I think it's time to do a self check. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. And see, you know, and just ask the question: Can I be doing better, or is there something I'm missing? Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Well, Ken, and again, it doesn't so mean that it's necessarily complicated because this is a tough loss. But right. I, I, I still wonder if you could do better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you would think that it would be, you would want maybe, and I'm sure that person would maybe even want to find even more relief at night. You know, let's say if they were, you know, going into their child's bedroom and holding on to their teddy bear or whatever the case may be and crying every night, that still takes quite a bit of a toll on just yeah. the whole yeah. energy of the person to have to, you know, for three years doing that is a long time, so... This was an awesome uh, conversation. We we touched on so many different things. I love it. Uh, you know, from the mystical experiences to COVID to traumatic deaths to PTSD. I mean, I really just wanted to pick your brain on a lot of different areas. So thank you so much for answering all these questions and kind of flying by the seat of your pants on a roller coaster with me and uh, going through a lot of different aspects. But I think it's a, it's important in uh, some of these questions I had left over from last year's uh, conversation with you. So I wanted to get some of these in. Well, I'm delighted we had a chance to talk together. Thank yes, you thank so you. much. Thanks, Ken. And thank you, everyone. Again, if you would like to get more information about the Afterlife Awareness Conference, visit afterlifeconference.com. And also remember, Afterlife, uh, the Afterlife Conference 2018, 2019, and the 2020 conference are all available on path11tv.com. Okay, take care. Thank you, everybody. Thanks again for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that show. And don't forget to head on over to path11tv.com. Grab your annual membership for $59. Remember, that is 40% off the regular price. So I really want you to take advantage of our launch deal of $59. You get over 75 hours of content that we have on there. So head on over to path11tv.com. Take advantage of the annual membership. All right, guys, take care.